This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we look at how the pandemic is reshaping real estate. I'm Miriam Hall, I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today on the show, Wendy Silverstein, a New York City real estate veteran who's worked at Citibank, Venado, New York REIT and WeWork. Last month, she announced a new venture called Silver Eagle Advisors. The company, which she co-founded with a former colleague, Ed Adler, will do loan restructures and workouts. It came about after Meridian Capital Group called Wendy, saying they wanted her to come on board and help with mortgage workouts in the pandemic. Instead, Wendy and Ed have formed their own shop that has a service and fee sharing agreement with the brokerage. Wendy's predicting a busy 2021 and 2022, and I started by asking her if she felt a sense of risk in setting up a new operation. Yeah, of course it's risky, but it wouldn't be any fun if it wasn't risky. If what I wanted to do was not take risks, I could clearly go have a very high-level C-suite corporate job at this point in my career. But the truth of the matter is I've been there. I've done that. It was great while it lasted. It doesn't hold any allure for me at this point in my life. So, you know, I have friends who are laughing at me at my age. I am literally out pitching myself and asking for business. It's not really my mode of operation for the last 35 years, but why not try it now? Have you got any business yet? I know it was only just announced last month. We are close on a couple of different things. And, you know, the truth is, Miriam, that I think that at this point, and we've talked to a lot of people, I think, and not inappropriately so, I think a lot of people, both the borrowers and the lenders, at this point are still kicking the can down the road. And again, I actually think in most cases that is the correct strategy. It's very difficult at this point to project into the future and know exactly when are you know people gonna go back into hotels on a regular basis? When are people really gonna go back into the office? When is the migration out of New York gonna stop? When are rents going to drop low enough that people who maybe never could afford to live in New York are going to start moving in? And there's just so many things in flux um, that I think kicking the can down the road, which is also aided by, you know, some government intervention, low interest rate, etc. That's a good strategy for now. But and people are feeding the projects. My personal opinion is that there's going to be a lot more pain before this gets better. I think that 2021, we're going to start to see a lot of the, quote, other shoe start to drop. And I think this pain could play itself out in 2021, 2022. We're a new business. We as people are certainly not new to the industry, but our business is new. So we're out, as I said, pounding the pavement and working hard to drum up business. I think what we're going to see is a very busy 2021 and 2022. And so I think what you see now is people are coming out of pocket because they believe, and they probably do, have a lot of equity to protect. But the longer this goes on, the more that equity is going to start to erode. And the more people, you know, borrowers are just not necessarily going to be able to continue to support the property, or at least support it at the equity level. And so as I said, I think that lenders are giving short forbearances. I think borrowers are you know, making um, capital available to carry the properties. But if this goes on, as unfortunately, I think it probably will for much longer, that's going to get harder and harder to do. And then the conversations around what can be done and who will do what are going to start to get tougher. When you say 
workouts and loan restructurings, it feels like a very big blanket term. And get specific of what you expect you'll be doing over the next six months or so. I mean, it will literally range from everything other than asking, I guess, in its simplest terms, if you ask for forbearance and that you won't pay currently now, but at some point in the future when things recover, you will have a catch up, so to speak, and pay everything back in full. That would be sort of the easiest to all the way, I give up, here are the keys, please take them. And some people may take for granted that just because you offer the keys, the lender's going to take them. That's not always the case. They're not necessarily you know, forced to do it. You can write that into your contract up front. Lesson learned, if you've ever been to that scenario and found out you actually can't toss the keys. Sometimes you've signed up for guarantees that last even after you've tossed the keys. So there's, just give me a little time, I'll make you whole to, here's the property back, you can have it, I can't deal with it anymore and hope they take it. And then there's everything in between. And the everything in between is where most of the activity takes place. And to, to simplify it, and there's nothing simple about it because every situation is different, I think that most people who are in the equity position and wanna protect the property, but if there's a strong case to be made that the lender today is potentially impaired, meaning that their loan is not in the money because of the diminution in value of the property given the facts and circumstances surrounding it, they may wanna put in their fresh capital, if you will, not at the bottom of the capital stru structure as equity, but somewhere above the last dollar of debt. And that's what you call a note restructure, an AB note. It may be that you cut off a piece of the bottom debt and create what's called a hope certificate. And basically it starts to share the pain on where it might be if people were not willing to put in any money and the lenders took it back. Remember lenders, just because they've made a loan doesn't mean that they can't lose money too. And our job is to avoid having the knockout drag out fight that might resolve in a bankruptcy and hurt all around and to try and keep it in an out of court settlement by making both sides realistic about what their relative outcome might otherwise be and meeting somewhere in the middle so that both parties are theoretically somewhat better off than they each would be in the worst case scenario. That's really how you get. And I'm not saying people wind up happy, but they should wind up less unhappy than they would otherwise be. And it's really important, particularly for borrowers who have problems, to be realistic about what a lender is or isn't gonna do for them and what they, the borrower, needs to bring to the table. Because if you think you're gonna get relief because you know the world got bad and you have nothing to offer, I think those borrowers are gonna be disappointed. Where do you think, I mean, people keep saying, oh, the distress isn't here yet, but it's coming. Is it retail and hospitality? Retail and hospitality clearly is already distressed. Um, I think that there's been very little price discovery with respect to what the quote new value is of some of these properties. My personal opinion is that, you know, we don't know when hotels are gonna recover. The longer it takes for people to feel safe. Movie theaters are getting killed 
because they opened up, but nobody went. And so, you know, Regal, I think, announced today that it's shutting down again. And so each one is going to be a story into itself, very, very dependent upon what's going to happen. Restaurants are getting killed. Street retail is, is a different story altogether. Street retail, particularly, I'm going to focus on Manhattan as an example. High street retail rents were so ridiculously high. They weren't sustainable even when the market was good. My personal opinion is after some pain is felt, and it will be felt, unfortunately, by both landlords and lenders who went against you know, very, very high rents for high street retail, the rents have just got to be a fraction of what they are so that businesses feel safe taking the risk to open up that they can you know, cover their rent and make a profit. My personal opinion is you're gonna see green sprouts, but not until the people who own it at the high basis, the lenders and the landlords take a significant amount of pain and we let those assets reprice and the rents reprice. I know that it's hard to predict because it's you, you can't really forecast, but where is there an area that you're expecting most of your business to be? I think a lot of business will come out of the CMBS world where you tend to see higher um, leverage and, and no recourse or limited recourse. You know, there's certainly recourse carve-outs for filing bankruptcy, but I think they are, the borrowers actually have sometimes more leverage, believe it or not, because they can give back the keys. Not that they necessarily want to, on the other hand, the servicers can be very difficult to deal with, but at the end of the day, you know, that's not a personal relationship. By the time a CMBS loan gets into special servicing, the special servicer is not customer-oriented per se. They're a fiduciary to the trust that holds the CMBS. Their job is to maximize value. So you really get into a discussion once again of, where is value? What's the right way to get there? What's the relative sharing of pain? But the borrower in that case, a borrower without recourse, and it, the more operationally intensive or complex the asset is, the borrower actually has some real leverage in that negotiation to try and work something out. So I think anything that was transitional in nature, you may have had a construction loan to do a major rehab on an office building with a lease-up schedule, all of which was highly underwritable pre-COVID. It's a very different underwriting now. But the truth of the matter is, whether it's a bank, and that's more often a bank than it is a CMBS or a debt fund who specializes in doing transitional assets, that's just not an easy situation for anybody. So again, I think that the borrower there has some leverage and the lender in that case probably wants to work with the borrower if the borrower is being reasonable to keep it in their hands because it's not a great situation for a lender to take over a transitional asset that needs to have either its improvement completed and or leased up. Lenders are not in the business of leasing up buildings. And yes, they can hire brokerage firms to do it, but that's all you need is a lender in possession with a brokerage firm to signal come ask for some cheap rents because clearly this is not a long-term holder. So it's not necessarily going to be, you don't haven't paid you all this money, we're taking it back. No, it's never, it's rarely that simple. It's mm -hmm. rarely that simple. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it hard work. And that's what makes it complex. 
you know, there's been a lot of talk about retail and, and, and hospitality, but I was just reading there's billions of CMBS uh, loans backed by office buildings in major cities that have leases, major leases expiring in the next two years. What do you think about that? Major leases expiring in the next two years is ordinary course for office buildings. Office buildings tend to sign, especially in major cities, 10-year leases. Some cities, five to seven is more typical, but that means you have somewhere between 10 and 20% of every building rolling every year. And when these buildings are large, because they could be a half a million square feet, a million square feet, sometimes even bigger, that's a lot of square footage. That is the office leasing business. So clearly, anybody and it, almost every landlord is going to have space rolling in their building somewhere is going to be facing depending upon when the original lease was put into place the potential for a rent roll down the question is going to be and that's a, a much larger question what's going to be the, the future of office usage and it's, it's clearly something that's going to evolve i happen to be a believer that office usage will change, but not as drastically as some people think, because I don't believe work from home for everybody is a solution that's viable for business. And I don't think people actually want it either. On balance, I think it's not gonna be a positive for office owners. I don't think it's gonna be hugely negative over time. I think it, the pendulum's gonna swing too far and that people are gonna cut back on office space and then realize it doesn't work so well. You wouldn't predict then there's gonna be a wave of foreclosures in the office space. Listen, I, I, a wave, no. Will there be isolated cases of foreclosure? For sure, because their buildings were empty, expecting to be leased up or were leased up, but are going empty during a difficult, time when whatever was previously underwritten for the most part is probably, I would say, is almost inevitably not achievable. And the question is, how much is it going to be off by? And some landlords are super well capitalized and they're going to ride it through no matter what. And some who are, you know, riding the wave up and just don't have the financial wherewithal to ride it out. Sure, those properties are going to change hands and they should. So the earliest part of your career, as you said, was at Citibank in corporate debt restructuring in the early 90s. Are you pulling on any of that experience now, do you think? Are there similarities? This cycle, am I drawing on from early 1990s? Sure, I'd like to think I learned a lot in the 30 years since then. So that was like, uh, you know, drinking from a fire hose because we were so young and got to do so many interesting things. Um, but yeah, of course, you learn every step of the way. This one is going to have unique challenges, um, both because of that, you know, it's not only, it's a global shutdown or it was a global shutdown. It's certainly a national and in New York City where I think we'll have a lot of work, a local shutdown that's unprecedented. The other thing that makes it particularly interesting is that in prior cycles, both prior cycles, there was deep financial distress amongst the bank and lending institutions. That is not the case at all. And I expect that is going to very much impact the behavior of the banks in these situations. And so where banks in the past have been, you know, not only motivated, but in some cases almost forced to get assets off their books, 
I don't think that's the game that they're going to play at all this time. And that will change things dramatically and not for the better for, for the borrowers, by the way. I think the lenders are going to be, um, you know, not anxious to take any sort of write down. I think they'll take back the asset and work it themselves to, to gain recovery um, before they, you know, before they give it back. The other thing that's certainly true for the 0809 um, coming out of that out of that recession, and what I think will be even more true in this recession, which was not the case in the early 90s, there is tremendous capital on the sideline waiting for distress. And so, if there's a lesson learned from the 0809 debacle coming out of it, that'll be carried over here is you know, the cities and the places that you think are just down and out like New York City, my personal opinion with that capital waiting on the sideline, I think it's gonna create a floor on a number of the asset types. And I think that the capital is gonna come in once again. You obviously really enjoy challenges. You left Vonado to take on the CEO role at New York REIT in 2017. Um, your whole job was to liquidate everything there, the portfolio of more than 4 million square feet. Um, and then from there, you went to WeWork to head up its real estate fund and you left amid the turmoil of the IPO, I believe just before they killed the plans to go public. What, what's your view on WeWork's chance of surviving through this health and economic crisis? You know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that SoftBank missed a big opportunity when it rescued WeWork in the fall of 19 to not put it through what I would call a restructuring reorganization. And at that point to reject some of the leases that I think they're trying to get out of now and probably a whole lot more. Um, in my personal opinion, that would have been a better approach for the company going forward. But with that said, you know, by bringing in Sandeep Matrani, who is a former colleague of mine, I think we overlapped for eight years at Bornado. He's a very, very strong real estate investor, owner, operator. And at the end of the day, WeWork is a real estate company and it's being run like a real estate company now. So putting aside my personal opinion that I think maybe they have a few too many leases around the world that they don't necessarily need, they should be well positioned to service what I think is something that WeWork brought Fourth in the office leasing world, which is the concept that big businesses, what they referred to and many others referred to as the enterprise customer, major Fortune 500 companies and beyond, but large companies and particularly multinational companies, not for all of their space, but for an increasingly um, significant piece of their space needs, they want flexibility. And flexibility is not co-working. They don't want to be mixed with other companies or other people. What they really want are shorter lease terms. And that impact on the office market in general is, I think, an imprint that we work left. They may have created it. They certainly if they didn't create it, they certainly accelerated it and it's here now. And so I think a lot of owner operators of office space are now facing that reality and starting to do it themselves. So in a way that creates a challenge for WeWork. On the other hand, WeWork has got 
you know, off to space all over the world to service these global multinationals. And if you read the press, and I, I only know at this point what I read in the press, that's their increasing focus. And so that's, that's a big piece of business that they're going to now be challenging the owner operators, whether it's a, a Vornado, a Tishman, a Brookfield, everybody who owns massive amounts of real estate is going to have to contend with that and WeWork's already been doing it for a while. So listen, the jury's out on WeWork. I don't know what their financial statements say anymore. I think relative to where it came from, they have a great you know, um, CEO. They're running it like a real estate company. I guess they've got a shot. They've got a good shot. I don't know. I think I know what you're going to say to this, but is there anything you can tell us about your time there? I mean, the, the prospectus got a public lashing. Uh, the stories that came out around that time were very eyebrow raising. Is there anything you can say about what was going on at that time? Um, you know, listen, there as always was a lot of um, very smart people who did a lot of good things in that company, um, some of which are continuing. And um, yeah, I think the prospectus kind of told it all. You've been, as you said, in the business for, for 30 years but you said you're nearly 60 and you, you could be retiring, but you're not. And you were, you were in real estate and, and commercial real estate and, and finance well before Me Too, well before kind of diversity was widely discussed in the public discourse. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to build a career that you have built uh, through that era as a woman who's had quite powerful positions. I went to Wharton as an undergrad, I majored in accounting, I came as an accountant, that didn't work. So I made a change. Um, I then went back to business school, I went into the LBO business. I actually had a lot of fun, but when I saw the world changing, I made a change. And so I think my message to, to, to most people, men or women, is if you enjoy working and you've got a career, you know, don't stay static or, and that doesn't necessarily mean changing companies. It means changing what you do even within the company that you're in. So I think, you know, evolving yourself is the single most important thing you can do to promote yourself. As a woman, I honestly noticed very little as a young woman, if there was any prejudice one way or another. And if there was, I probably didn't even identify it as such. And, you know, the sad truth is, in a way, the biases almost get more extreme the more senior you get. And the only thing that you can do is a couple, a couple of things. One, try not to let it bother you. I, I happen to have been born for some reason with a thick skin. And so I'm lucky to have that. But I don't let small things bother me. I really don't. I just I either didn't notice, I ignored it. And if it was something that couldn't be ignored, I picked and chose my spots when to talk about it. That's one thing. The second thing is I was lucky to have a generation of women at Citibank who were maybe 10 or, you know, in some cases even you know, more than 10 years older than me who were good to me, who mentored me. And I took that very seriously from a young age. And I have spent the last more than 30 years mentoring young people, but women in general. And I know because I'm friends with so many of them that women who I mentored with were in their 20s that are now in their 40s and they're unbelievable mentors to other women. And so the message is that, and, and it's the same thing, you know, for 
people, women, it's not even the issue now. It's people of color in our industry. There's so few of them that to me, I'm almost, I'm never going to turn away from the women issue, but there's new issues to, to worry about and all different kinds of diversity so that everybody can feel comfortable in our industry. Women have it harder than men. If you're tough, you're going to be called bitchy until they get to know you. And then, you know, you're not really a bitch and it's all good. And, you know, if you're not outgoing, if you're not a little rough and tumble, probably going to be harder for you than if you are. How do you rate the, uh, you were talking about, you know, getting more people of color into the industry. And I've been looking for a while at the, some of the boards at some of the biggest real estate companies. And they still have very few people of color. They have made a lot of improvements with women, although it is still obviously more dominated by men, but still very few people of color in those top echelons. How do you rate the industries? And that's against a backdrop of a widespread kind of discussion about this. How do you rate the industry's ability to step up and actually make change this time? Listen, I think for the first time, and particularly the, the women discussion has just been going on for a long time and it's just a slow grind, but it's happening slowly. I think the discussion around bringing in more diversity and specifically people of color in, in, in all the ways that that means has really now started to get some real traction. And so it's early. But I could tell you in the various groups that I'm a part of, women's groups, you know, various real estate groups, it's a discussion. And the discussion only matters if it turns into action. And it's not worth getting into specifics because everybody knows if you have a spot to hire, how are you going to think about that differently? If you hear about a board position or a job that you're not interested in, how are you going to pass that forward a little more specifically to get it into the hands of somebody that might not have gotten that opportunity that you might not have thought about before? Every single person's just got to try that much harder. Do you think you'll be doing it with your company? I mean, are you going to be setting goals for your company in terms of who you might be working with? I know you're small-ish at the moment. We're super small at the moment. And so the truth of the matter is that my son is one of our employees who I work together at WeWork and he's totally qualified for the job. That's beside the point. But there wasn't a chance that the second employee was going to be a white male and it's not. So she has not yet announced her, her resignation. So I'm not going to get into any more specifics. But yes, it'll 100% factor in and my partner Ed Adler and I are on the exact same page with regard to that. Wendy, thank you so much for making time for this discussion. Thank you so much, Miriam. I really appreciate you inviting me and listening to what we have to say and all about Silver Eagle Advisors.